I think we, we are all present and correct. Housekeeping uh, matters. Uh, pe people have, I know you have extremely complex social lives, particularly at this time of year. Uh, people have been leaving the lecture hall early. I know you have other appointments to get to. If you're going to do that during these lectures or any lectures, please sit at the end of the row. We will finish uh, uh, before six o'clock today, so bear that in mind. I'm delighted that we have Monique Villa with us today. She is a journalist, a business leader, and a passionate advocate for women's empowerment, which makes her a perfect speaker to speak to the Media Agenda Talks audience. She is currently CEO of the Thomson Reuters Foundation, and I think she's going to explain uh, what that entails to us today. But she has a long and distinguished career in journalism, including, I think, mainly at Agence France Presse. Yes. And um, she's going to uh, speak to us, and she's, she'll be very happy to take your questions in the second half an hour. Monique Villa. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry to be, to be late. Um, we were stuck in the Jubilee line because we have the chance to work in Canary Wharf. Um, so, today I think you asked me to talk about data more, and uh, so I very quickly will tell you what I've done in my life and how I came to the foundation and to the charity world, which I didn't know before. So, I have been a journalist for more than 20 years. I was at Agence France Presse, as you said, uh, in Paris, in Rome, and I was the bureau chief in London between 91 and 96, so a long time ago. Then I came back to Paris and became director of business development in AFP to develop AFP worldwide. Uh, I did that for four years, got frustrated, left, and the best offer was uh, Reuters. So I joined Reuters um, Media, which is the business of the, the news agency business of Reuters, which is the one which is the face of the company, but not the one which makes the big earnings. Uh, so, but we are the face, so it's still very important, and we are journalists. So, um, I was in Reuters from 2001 until 2008 as managing director of Reuters Media. Uh, when Thomson acquired Reuters in 28, and they asked me if I would uh, take... Uh, the, it, it was interesting because Tom Glosser, who was the CEO of Reuters, was acquired by Thomson, but uh, he, he became the CEO of Thomson Reuters, which is quite... Uh, 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 curious. And he asked me if I would take the foundation, what was the Reuters foundation at the time, and transform it into something he had no clue what, but something that would give a culture to the new company. So it was kind of interesting challenge, so I took it, knowing nothing of the charity world, looked at what we did, and what we did at the Reuters foundation was essentially training journalists worldwide, which we still do, uh, and it's one of our four programs. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, the, the, the rest was a little bit of coverage of humanitarian issues with AlertNet, and, and uh, uh, especially covering when a natural disaster happens. And we were giving grants to NGOs. So I looked at the grants, first, first thing I did, because I arrived in May 28, and there was... Uh, subsequently, very quickly, the earthquake in China and the cyclone in Myanmar, 
So we distributed little grants, and, uh, and for me it made no sense, because three months after we received letters from the NGOs who received it, uh, saying thank you very much, it was very useful. One of them said we could buy blankets. I was wondering why Reuters would buy blankets. Uh, maybe we could give things which were more appropriate to what we know and what we can offer. So completely reviewed the program of the foundation and decided that we would put all the skills of the Thomson Reuters uh, company at the service of uh, the poorest in the world. And, and so it's namely news, information, and connection. This is what we know how to do, so this is what we do now. So we train journalists around the world. This is the media uh, development part of the foundation. And uh, we have trained something like 12,000 journalists in 30 years, so it's quite a lot in every language, in every part of the world, from how you cover HIV-AIDS uh, in Africa without writing stupidity, to how you cover corruption in your country, in the Balkans, or in your country, in Ghana, uh, where do you, you should look at, etc. So we do that massively, we go on. We have also created platforms when it was needed, because of course, it's, it, it, when you think of journalism, it is, um, it is absolutely true that uh, journalists can foster democracy. And, and um, we were training many journalists in Egypt before the revolution. After the revolution, a few of them came back to us and said, look, we are going to have elections for the first time, free elections in Egypt, and, um, and, and we, we don't have any, um, any website where we can find independent news. Oh, you want to put that in my face, so yeah. So I will sit down. <laughs> Prefer to be standing up, but never mind. Uh, and, and so, so, uh, so, so they asked if we could do something. So we very quickly found funding in Egypt and created a website called Aswad Masriya, which gives independent news to, in Arabic, of course, to uh, the Egyptians. It became very quickly the, the most successful website in Egypt. So the funding that we had for one year, uh, the, the funders told us you have to go two more years because it has become indispensable, a voice of independence. So we are now finishing these three years uh, with Aswat Masriya, but it has played a very important role in giving all Egyptian media news that were totally under the Reuters principles of independence and accuracy and freedom from bias. Um, we have done, um, uh, just launched now, one year ago, the same in uh, Zimbabwe. But we do only economic news, because obviously under Mugabe you cannot do political news. But we hope that uh, at some point we will be able also to cover political news. And we are going to launch the same kind of website in Myanmar before the elections, which is next year. So we, we, we do a lot of things in, in this domain of training journalists. Then we also have the Reuters Institute, um, the Reuters Oxford Institute for the Research on Journalism. Maybe you know it. We, we do 20 publications a year there, and it's on all the trends in journalism, and especially on digital journalism. We have become now, with the index we publish every year, some kind of a reference in the, in the world of digital news to make sense of social media, etc. Um, then we have an editorial team, which is very important, and that we, I created, really, 
We have today 30 journalists, a staff journalist at the foundation, and a hundred of stringers around the world, and we cover the underreported issues. And we name underreported issues the issues that normally are ignored by mainstream media. Speaking of uh, human rights, women's rights, which is very important in what we do, um, corruption, but in, in a very horizontal manner, not only the scandals, etc., uh, and uh, a human trafficking and slavery, and also the human impact of climate change. So this is a team of journalists, very experienced, coming from Reuters, from DFT, from the BBC, from everywhere, who are fed up to do business news and all kind of news, and want to, to, to cover issues which they think are maybe more meaningful. So we do that. We do that exactly on the principles of Reuters. And since, uh, so we distribute it for free on our website, trust.org. It's our website. I bought it, by the way, five years ago uh, to a shop in Texas. <coughs> Nobody was interested by the name trust.org. Uh, so it's ours. And uh, <laughs> so you can go there. And you, you will find a lot of interesting things. We have a third program, which also comes from Trust, which is called Trust Law. And this is a very important one. This is probably now the flagship of the foundation um, because it has grown incredibly quickly in four years. I created it in July 2010. The idea was to give lawyers for free, working pro bono, to all NGOs and social enterprise that we vet ourselves around the world to spread the practice of pro bono because it was not a practice um, uh, very well known in many, many countries. And today, four years after, we have um, uh, 450 law firms members, all the big ones, but also, you know, 14 in mainland China. And mainland China was not a country where you would do pro bono naturally. Um, we have 55 in India, law firms working for NGOs in India, etc., uh, etc. Et 14 in Brazil, etc. So it's completely global. And the lawyers have told us that they have spent... Uh, for, for beneficiaries through trust law in the four years of its existence, $54 million. So this is, in my view, a much bigger impact uh, on the NGOs and the social enterprise to give them support for everything they do uh, and brilliant brains of lawyers and program of research. We have changed law in Philippines. We have changed uh, a law in China thanks to a research made by very big law firms, etc., for NGOs that after do their advocacy and use it to, to have it, etc. So trust law is an interesting one. And, and then the last one is trust women, and I, maybe a few of you have seen, it was last month, last week in London, so I'm exhausted. Um, it was two days conference, and, and we had 550 delegates discussing on how to empower women economically in the world, and a full day on slavery and human trafficking with two Nobel Prizes, and many, many other people. So we do big things, uh, and the, the foundation has completely transformed itself in the last five years. But uh, I want to speak of how we leverage data at the foundation, because this is what we discuss. And uh, I'm sure you will be uh, debating that. But before that, I want to say, and I want to give a big disclaimer, I am uh, not a statistician. I am a journalist and a businesswoman, and I know nothing of statistics. All I know is that if you can tell a story, backing it with data, you are much stronger. 
for whatever you do. So if you say there are 35 million slaves in the world today, which is the reality, uh, and you say this is the population of Australia and Belgium together, people will see immediately what it means. If you, if you say it's a $150 billion business, trafficking and slavery, uh, and this is three times the earnings and the, or the profits of, of Apple, you also see the dimension. So, so use always data to, to tell a story. It, it helps you considerably in the minds of people who are not particularly um, uh, uh, wise on these issues. So as soon as you can add facts and evidence to boost the impact of the story, uh, you, 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 you have a greatest impact. So when it is crunched and analyzed by experts, uh, it, it, it can illustrate a story as well and as vividly as a photo. I, I've, I have managed the photo business of Reuters for years. I love it. A photo tells a southern world, but a photo has also a ton of data. And uh, so you, you move very quickly from photo to data, etc. And if you can tell it, you, you can make it lively. Um, so that's many reasons why it is important. It's, it, it, data is important because it allows very complex information, uh, like a large legal document, so boring you don't know how to speak of it, or you know, complicated financial processes, you, you, you make it accessible to the average person, and so you, you give a service to everybody. So it fosters greater transparency for the governments, and uh, it, it also uh, brings other institutions to, to, to pay attention to what we are saying and writing. So we make, uh, we make large amount of data accessible, and uh, we also, what, what we also try to see, and I will give very quickly a few examples, is, um, is show in images what it means. So you have many issues in the world which have no data. Slavery is one of them, and we will come back to that. Uh, there is no data because it's a silent crime, because very often the, 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 the survivors, when they are in hell, don't know they are slaves, don't know they are uh, uh, in that situation. So you don't have data. It's very complicated to build it, and we try to build it. But the same if you think, for instance, of violence against women. You have a little bit of data here and there, uh, but you have no big comparison. And I will show you an example where we did a perception poll asking to specialists around the world what are the, the, the most dangerous countries for women to live in. And this was the first time we had data in comparison between countries. Triggered such a debate was only because India was number four. It was four years ago, well before the gang rape in New Delhi. And, and so BBC, CNN, and all of them invited me to say, your, 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 your poll can only be not serious. Uh, Syria is the biggest democracy in the, uh, India is the biggest democracy in the world. How could it be such a bad place for women? And the reality is because it's a democracy and you have access to all the numbers, 
uh, and, and many other things, you know that uh, this is the place where uh, the law forbids you to marry your daughter at 12, but still you do it, uh, where violence against women is endemic, where uh, uh, fe feminicide is uh, a daily um, uh, operation, etc., etc. So that was there. The, we did a second poll. So this data, that is to say it's not real data, it's a perception poll, but the fact that we put it together, gave to Indian women and organization and advocacy uh, the right to go and say, this cannot be, we cannot be one of the worst countries immediately after Congo and Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the year after, we ranked the G20 countries for women, uh, again with specialists, with the same questions of the UN. And uh, India came last, after Saudi Arabia. And it was a shock again, because Saudi Arabia, as you know, a woman cannot do gymnastics or, or cannot do anything with a male without a male guardian. But they, 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 they still have access to health, to, to, to finance, and to education, which you don't always have in India. So it was a shock in India, and it started the campaign. And after that year, there was the gang rape in Delhi in December, and then this poll was quoted every time uh, again. And, and this year, so we, we decided to shed light like this when there is an issue where nobody discusses it. Violence against women is something you don't discuss because very often women don't go to the police to say I've been raped, especially when you are Indian, because you know that maybe they will force you to marry your rapist or whatever, so you don't do that. And so it helps the activists when we do this kind of data. The last we did was one month ago, and it was we can maybe show and maybe cut, because we don't have a lot of time, so we will cut quickly, I will tell you when. Uh, it was on the safety of transport in the cities. Maybe you have seen it. Uh, it, it, it was asking to women in the 16 biggest cities, capital cities in the world, 15 capital cities in the world. So, so it, it was very interesting because, of course, the mayor of Bogota had to say, well, uh, we should look at this and act on it. Uh, the, 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 the manager of all the transports in Bogota said, we have to act on it, etc. So now you have in Colombia and in Mexico City, I mean in the worst cities, uh, activists asking for, for change. So, so data, when put together, can trigger a debate, can, can launch things, uh, and, and so we, we do that. Um, uh, I'm trying to go very fast because I know we are limited by the time, but just for this poll, we, we worked with YouGov. So YouGov uh, had put question to six, more than 6,000 women, and then we asked on our side specialists uh, in each of these countries what they thought, and then um, one, um, one part of uh, Reuters, Thomson Reuters, which called Starmine, put the two poles together and, and did the ranking, and they are specialized in that. Um, so it's very interesting to learn that even in London, 45% of the women think that they would be better off if they had women carriages in the tube, which is for me unbelievable because it doesn't tackle at the issue. It just, it just you know, puts a solution which is not a permanent solution, obviously. Um, and, and more than 70% thought that if anything happened to them, nobody would move a hand to help them, which was also shocking, I think. And in Paris, it was 84%, which was still worse. Uh, 
Um, the, the, other, the, the other place where we use data quite intensively, and I will tell you how, is uh, at Trust Women. So Trust Women is this conference that I created in December 2012 uh, to put the rule of law behind women's rights. And the idea came, you know, we cover women's rights with our journalists and our multimedia at the foundation. Uh, and so I was invited in all this conference about women and the most powerful women, etc., etc., and and got very frustrated because you hear of terrible cases, but nothing happened. So I decided to create a, a conference where we would take action. So at the first conference, and so from day one, we we deal with uh, economic empowerment of women or um, uh, violence against women last year, etc. And day two is entirely dedicated since the start to slavery and human trafficking because I was very struck uh, three years ago that even my French journalists didn't know that there were more than 30 million slaves in the world and wanted to shed light on that to force government and companies to, to act on it. And, and, and so we did that. At the first conference, um, Something was uh, very interesting that happened. A man from J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, working with the general counsel of J.P. Morgan Chase, came and explained that uh, he, looking at uh, the credit card record of his clients, he noticed that the chain of nail salon in New York, so manicure in New York, his clients were paying this chain always between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. in the morning and never less than $100. So he thought it was a bit suspicious. So he shared the information with law enforcement agencies, and they discovered that it was not only a network of prostitution, but a network of traffickers. The women that were in that network were trafficked from Mexico, essentially. And, and, and so these were slavers. They were arrested, and the network dismantled. So I asked him to come at the conference and speak of that to try to convince other banks to do the same. And we took together the action to convince the other American banks to do the same. And um, he came with the brilliant idea to ask to Cyrus Vance if he, if he would do it with me. Cyrus Vance is the Manhattan district attorney, the prosecutor in New York. And he was delighted to do that, of course. So we had our first uh, working group in, uh, in April 2013. And uh, we told to all the biggest banks in the U.S., plus American Express and Western Union, um, how to put, um, to, to, to look at their data to help the prosecution of traffickers. And uh, I had uh, a prosecutor, a woman with a fantastic woman, Martina Vandenberg. She was there. She has an NGO, and she 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 prosecutes the traffickers on behalf of the victims to ask for financial compensation for all the years where they have been slaves. And, and she, she opens it uh, when it was a turn to speak, saying, uh, you bankers, I, when I look at you, I don't see in you money. I see data. And data is absolutely crucial to us because when you when you sue the traffickers, you, as, as, you are as good as your survivor, as the person that has been trafficked. And of course, very often these persons leave, you know, coming out of hell, you are such in trauma, you are, you, you are in, a, in a desperate state, and you need a lot of courage to want to sue your traffickers because they are bad guys who will try until the end to stop you uh, pursuing them. 
So, so she said, you know, we need the data because every time we have the data, we don't need any longer the person herself, the victim herself. And so uh, the, all the banks have agreed to do that. And since April 2014, you have the six biggest banks in the U.S., Bank of America, Citigroup, um, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, T, uh, Barclays, and uh, TD Bank who do that with and share with the, 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 the prosecutor. And uh, Cyrus Vance came back to the conference this year and he said since, since then he has a lot more suspicious reports and it helps him prosecute uh, slavery and trafficking. So data can be crucial. At the conference we had also a, a little genius of data who works for one of the American uh, agency called... Uh, um, DARPA, and uh, DARPA uh, is, uh, is taking full chunks of the internet, and they have, they have decided now to work in the, in the domain of slavery. And so, for instance, he, he took all the ads, the sex ads on the internet in the world for one year, studied it, then ha had the price that uh, it's $250 million that are put only in these ads. And then it gives you a dimension of what it is. Then he, he knows in which countries it happens, in which cities. And then he knows in, in which cities they have the same photo of the same girl in 50 different cities. And then he has the, number, the phone number of the people who have uh, asked to put the ad, etc. So, so this is the kind of data, the work on data is fascinating also for, to, to, to fighting crimes such as uh, slavery and trafficking. I'm not a specialist, but it, it, it was really powerful. So uh, this year we are going to replicate what we did with the US in Europe. So we are going to do that with the European banks. It's much more complicated in Europe because we have privacy laws. In the US, they don't uh, because they have the Terrorism Act, so you can share information with, uh, uh, with the authorities much easier than in Europe. But we will find a way. We will work with uh, Europol, etc. The way we, why we do that, it's because we are the brokers between people. You know, Cyrus Vance was not in a position to discuss with all these banks because as one of the banks told me after the first meeting, you know these regulators, they are on our back all the time. They are a permanent board, they ask tons of questions, they make us waste a lot of time when they don't find us. Uh, and, and, and so uh, it, it, it's painful. But for once that we can do something that we know will be meaningful for one issue, which is trafficking and slavery, uh, of course we are happy to do that. The other thing where we, we are working intensely is uh, with corporation to clean their supply chain. So slavery started to grow immensely uh, when the big corporation around the world 30 or 40 years ago started to, uh, to outsource completely their production to development world without paying any attention to their supply chain. And so... Uh, they have now this big issue is that they have no idea what happens in their supply chain and in their supply chain a lot of bad things happen indeed and it is it makes them very shy because they they, they know that it's not something you can do themselves alone i mean it, it's a very complicated issue so we had a lot of discussions at uh, at the conference last week on that 
And, and, and we, we, we start, I mean, there are companies which have started to really look at it and do it properly. For instance, we had Lush. Lush is a cosmetic company. And uh, the, the cosmetics, I mean, I've discovered that I didn't know. I'm not scientific at all. But when you put lipstick or whatever cosmetic, it's done with mica. And the mica mine, half of the production of mica is in India. And in the mica mine, you have many children, um, slaves who work on that. So Lush decided not to, not to do anything with mica. So they replaced mica by other products, etc. So they were there presenting. And, and it was interesting because, um, b because indeed there are companies which have started to do that. And us as consumers, we should pay attention at what we buy and try to know if it is clean or not, etc. But of course, we cannot know. It's very complicated also what we wear, what we eat. Uh, very often, there is slavery behind, uh, etc. But this is where data helps a lot, and, and we will have more and more of that. So, uh, you to wrap up. Yeah, I will wrap questions. up now. I, I, will, I will shut up. I had prepared a, a few things to tell you, but um, that's fine. Um, uh, on... Uh, how journalists work with data, uh, you know, how the Guardian was among the first to adopt the, to adopt the term with the launch of data blog in 29, and they were quite pioneering the field, uh, and also how to tell a compelling data story if you want, but I will keep it for another time. Thank you very much, Monique Villa.